Ryan Stan here with ASAP Frontline, live from uh, here at ASAP 22 in San Francisco, California. And uh, another one of our topicals that we have um, from, the, uh, from visiting here at ASAP 22. So if you came to the conference, you may have actually may attend the talk, but if you're catching this afterwards, then uh, may see it on virtual ASAP, but Dr. Josh Broder, and he's gonna talk to us a little bit today about neck masses. Uh, something that always makes us a little bit nervous. We're just hoping it's reactive lymph node, but uh, kind of give us a background first and foremost, kind of give us a background on yourself. Sure. Josh Broder, I work at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, where I'm fortunate to be the residency program director. So a shout out to our, our Duke alumni. Fantastic. So uh, Duke, another program I didn't qualify to go to. Um, different story. Other days not, actually. I think it didn't apply, but I wouldn't have gotten in. So give us a little background on neck masses and, and the, the talk that you gave. Sure. Uh, you know, like, like any talk, you, you approach this and, and try to learn as you're developing the talk and, and share with the audience the things that really surprised me in, the, in this case about, about neck masses. And I found a great resource, which is a clinical practice guideline from the American Academy of Otolaryngology. And they summarize some surprising and frankly devastating facts. So one, uh, neck masses are likely to be malignancies in adults. And, mm -hmm. and that's you know, something which I, I think, as you said, we, we hope it's not going to be the case, but we need to be honest with ourselves and with our patients about that high probability to ensure that what we do in the emergency department and what we do in follow-up leads to a timely and accurate diagnosis. And some of the pearls that I gleaned along the way are that we can really interfere with that accurate diagnosis by a misguided attempt to treat an infection. Mm -hmm. So many of these uh, present with greater than two weeks of symptoms, and that's a red flag in an adult over 40 that it's going to be a malignancy. And there's a strong association between treatment with antibiotics and delay and ultimate diagnosis of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. So we need to be on guard against that. It's yet another reason, in addition to antibiotic stewardship, that we need to be careful about the way we prescribe. Absolutely. In fact, we, one of the podcasts is just uh, re-recorded earlier today is about some antibiotic uh, stewardship. So just some stuff from that site, uh, if you want to check that out, entnet.org. Um, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma worldwide annual incidence of about 550,000 cases, 5% of all newly diagnosed cancers um, from 88 to 04, so kind of the turn of the millennia. U.S. population experienced a 225% increase in HPV positive oropharyngeal cancers and masses. Of course, that's something we've seen um, have, have gotten headlines because of Hollywood elite uh, actors and actresses who uh, end up with uh, uh, ENT-related head and neck cancers. And what it's saying here, if current trends continue, the incidence of HPV-positive uh, oropharyngeal cancers, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma will surpass that of HPV-positive cancer of the uterine cervix by 2020. I'm not sure if that happened. This was actually posted in 2017, but it makes sense because of the vaccination efforts with regard to preventing uh, HPV-based cervical cancers has made a huge drop in the incidence of those. Um, and so now you're seeing not only where there hasn't been as much a focus on males, and then also those that um, were adults already or did not get access to, um, to, the, uh, to HPV prevention as part of their vaccination strategy. So let's talk and let's go into some of those things um, 
and other interesting facts you may have and, and some of the steps that we may do when we're presented in the emergency department. Sure. So I wanna, one of the key things that I, I want to emphasize is don't be misled by the title of the talk, neck mass. The patient isn't going to come to us saying, hey, doc, I have a neck mass. I mean, we're lucky if they do. That makes the job easier. We're going to evaluate the mass that they point out to us. But often the symptoms are more subtle, and we don't have to memorize a list. We, we know the structures in the neck, and anything in the neck could be affected. So it's often a functional complaint. It's, I can't speak the way I used to. My voice sounds different. My swallowing is painful or interfered with. My breathing is off. Uh, and th those types of complaints, sore throat, any of those should really alert us that it amasses on the differential. When I, again, some of the key points from this clinical practice guideline are that we should assume malignancy when there's not an obvious infectious source. So when the patient isn't presenting with a fever, and again, when it's two weeks or more, or that, again, nebulous history, like, I'm not really sure how long it's been going on for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, in, in North Carolina, the patients will say to me, um, you know, it's been a minute. And oh, they, yeah, they don't mean it's been 60 long. seconds. They mean it's been a while. If they can't pin down the duration, we should be thinking about malignancy. Um, the go-to test for us is going to be CT, and, and in my talk I tried to share the uh, virtual patient experience with, with the audience by doing a skin-level CT reconstruction. That may sound a little strange. I'm not advocating to diagnose skin lesions using CT scan, but we're able to bring back what the patient's surface topography looks like. And you can see the buttons on the shirt, mm -hmm. the hair on their head, and what's kind of terrifying is that many of these patients don't have a visible abnormality. They can feel something, either that functional change or maybe a mass-like sensation, long before it's visible to us as a, a, a difference in their skin topography. So we, should, we shouldn't be looking for a large mass. If you do feel a mass, if it's greater than a centimeter and a half in size, it's another strong predictor of malignancy in an adult. When, when you get the CT scan, um, we should be careful that we're not falsely reassured by cystic lesions. And I, I have to admit, before I started uh, researching this talk, I was under the impression that a cystic lesion held a better prognosis. And uh, th that's based on my experience with kids where you'll see congenital abnormalities like thyroglossal duct cysts or branchial cleft cysts, which, which typically are uh, benign in etiology, but it turns out that in adults, cystic lesions actually are more likely than not to be malignant. And again, it gets back to HPV-related lesions. A lot of these present as, as cystic lesions. I gave an example in the talk of someone who presented with a, a small mass that he'd noted, cystic on uh, CT, but lit up on a PET scan. Again, I'm not advocating the PET scan as part of the emergency department evaluation, but just proof that this really was a malignancy. And the last thing we want to do is tell a patient, don't worry, it's just a cyst. Go about your business. These patients all, 100% of these lesions need to be biopsied, whether they're solid or cystic. So 100% of these patients really need to be referred to ENT. And the American College of Radiology weighs in here as well, saying there is no such thing as a reassuring CT appearance. There's just not enough negative predictive value from imaging. If the patient has one of these spectrum of neck complaints, they need that ENT follow-up, and the ENT guidelines call for direct visualization of the larynx. Mm -hmm. So unless you are prepared to put a scope in and feel comfortable knowing the normal anatomy of the hypopharynx and the, and the larynx, 
we absolutely should not clear these patients, say your workup was reassuring, again, return to life as usual and don't worry about anything. So what are the, some of the, and I, and I want to commend you on great focus because while we're going through that segment, we had two close friends go via through a keychain over to one and you just stayed right on point, so well done there. Um, so when these patients come in, you know, the, we look at the CT scan, examination, is there any other, uh, and you mentioned future goal being the uh, direct visualization and, and, and biopsy, are there other, any other ancillary tests or things that we should do in the emergency department labs or whatnot to kind of to start to get more of a differentiation, things that may help get the ball rolling faster and more forward? Sure. I don't think it's so much about lab testing in the emergency department, but again, thinking a little bit about some highlights of the imaging approach. So we want to give IV contrast if possible for our patients, and CT is the go-to uh, imaging exam for the vast majority of adults. If the patient can't get IV contrast or has another contraindication to CT, uh, MR is another option. And ultrasound plays a more limited role in adults. And the reason for that is in part that it just doesn't give us the full uh, detail. I'm a huge user of ultrasound at point of care, but it doesn't really fully evaluate the neck. We can see structures, but we don't get a full assessment of airway compromise, just as an example. So w while ultrasound may play a role, for example, in guiding a biopsy, I wouldn't rely on it as the sole imaging modality. And I refer the, the listeners back to the American College of Radiology. If you just Google ACR, appropriateness criteria, you can get a full list of their recommendations for a variety of neck mass scenarios, including things like masses in adults, masses in kids, Kids, pulse style neck masses and so on. With this, this very much seems to focus, um, I mean it really kind of does revolve around the malignancy based, HPV based, um, uh, head and neck cancers. Um, are there other things that you know we as docs need to be really concerned about? Of course all of us have the panic alert with the post-op patient who comes in and has expanding neck mass yeah, yeah. looking for that, uh, that hemorrhage. Um, is, are there other things that we need to leave on that differential that need to be addressed there? Sure, and, and that you know the title says it's a difficult di uh, differential diagnosis, but I, I, I intentionally wanted to simplify this concept a bit for all of us. We're not going to be able to figure out the exact etiology just looking at the patient or talking with them. We're really looking for evidence that there is a mass-like effect going on in the neck. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the talk, I gave some examples of uh, large goiters that surround. Um, the airway, and they, they may have a similar effect on the patient symptomatically, not necessarily cancer, but still structurally a threat to the patient. Of course, infections of various kinds, and usually the clue there is a shorter duration. So we're talking about somebody who has had less than two weeks of symptoms, and again, the, the clinical practice guideline emphasizes if it's been about two weeks and it hasn't yet come to, uh, you know, they refer to it as separation, but if we're not getting pus somewhere at the skin surface or inside uh, the, the oropharynx after two weeks, we should be where it's probably not going to be an infection. Uh, ulcerations and skin lesions, I think, oral lesions are really important. They're anywhere on the scalp. And so a good exam is another part of, of this differential, though those, those features might be absent in a patient who still has a malignancy. I gave an example in my talk of something that hides from us in COVID. Patients come in masked, mm -hmm. and if we're not careful, we can miss oral lesions. I had a patient who uh, you take the mask down and there's an ulcerated non-healing lip lesion that, again, the patient says, well, I'm not sure. It's been there for a long time and I hadn't really gotten it checked out yet. And it's a clue that the rest of his neck complaints are going to be malignancy related. The, the other thing that was really striking to me in looking at many scans in patients that I'd seen is how much airway compromise a patient can have and not be stridulous. 
not be hypoxic. And just to reinforce that hypoxia is such a late finding, you know, when we're awake and alert and upright, we can protect our airway. I had two examples in my talk of patients who on CT appear to have no airway at all. They actually have complete obstruction of their airway when they're supine in the CT scanner. I feel fortunate they didn't arrest when I lay them flat. Um, but we, we should be thinking about these patients and not putting it off necessarily to an outpatient evaluation. Both of those patients were admitted for awake tracheostomies because their airway was non-existent. And it, it, it would have been easy for them to go home and obstruct and sleep. And they were speaking to me about their complaints in the emergency department. So again, um, being cautious that, you know, it's one thing if the patient is stridulous, of course, we're gonna react in that way. Building out your surgical airway approach. I, I looked at these scans and terrifyingly, if you have a laryngeal cancer that's filling your larynx, where do we normally go to perform a surgical airway? We do a cricothyrotomy, which would put us squarely in the center of the tumor. So these patients actually need lower access, inferior access to their airway. So unless all of us are prepared to do a bedside percutaneous tracheostomy, we need to be really cautious about waiting till the last minute for an intervention. This isn't, you know, if you're calling your ENT in from home, this patient could really crash. That makes a, a ton of sense, and uh, especially with the masks. I mean, there's a lot of things we're discovering. People pull their masks off, like, oh, that's that's not ideal. Um, but the airway management and, and what you mentioned with the strider and airway compromise. My wife actually has had a history diagnosis of idiopathic uh, subglottic stenosis, so not related to uh, any type of cancerous lesions, infection, anything like that. But you know, her airway got down to like eight millimeters, six or eight millimeters before the actual last procedure. And, you know, she'd get short of breath with, you know, hiking, stairs, exertion, and things of that nature. But, you know, it really wasn't that much. But then we see the pictures from the procedure, like, holy smokes. Like, I would have, trying to pass a tube down, that would have been, uh, would have been legit. If you're looking uh, at this, uh, at the report, some of the statements, guideline, key statements, avoidance of antibiotic therapy, of course, we're trying to move towards that anyway. Um, you know, if UTCs and walk-in clinics, if you're listening, stop giving everybody antibiotics. Actually, just in the talk right before I came in here, um, there was uh, Dr. Milne with the Skeptics Guide was, was talking about the uh, study that came out that was the non-inferiority of placebo compared to antibiotics for confirmed imaging, confirmed uh, pneumonia in children, uh, meaning that most of them are viral and our bodies can actually handle a lot of things. Uh, but avoidance of antibiotic therapy, standalone suspicious history, standalone suspicious physical examination, additional suspicious signs and symptoms, follow-up uh, of the patient not at increased risk, patient education, targeted physical examination, imaging, fine needle aspiration or FNA for those that like the acronym, cystic masses, ancillary tests, and examination under anesthesia of the upper aerodigestive tract uh, before uh, open biopsy. So really kind of walk down a lot of the things that you've already discussed in terms of this plan of examination. And I think one of the most important things is going to be because, as you mentioned, this isn't going to be an open and closed book case in our emergency department, more than likely. So that follow-up is going to be integral in arranging that follow-up and being aware a lot of times that you know, when patients call and they say, yeah, we'll get you in for an urgent follow-up in six months or whatever it may be. So talk a little bit about the, the follow-up plan and, and making that happen. Yeah, I think follow-up is so important. And just the, the non-specificity of the, of the CT findings in some cases that could 
um, trap you into the wrong pathway. So I, I gave two examples of a patient, one with three days of sore throat and on CT had a narrowed airway with what really was just a run-of-the-mill uh, peritonsillar abscess with rim enhancement, and another with three months of sore throat. And that patient had very similar uh, you know, fluid collection with uh, contrast enhancement around its perimeter, but the three-month history is the clue that that is not an infection. It's a mass maybe with a necrotic center. And so you can imagine getting a CT report that just describes what we're kind of accustomed to hearing, that the patient's got maybe a peritonsillar abscess, put them on some antibiotics or treat them with some steroids and get them home. And maybe we don't require follow-up. It's not on our minds that a patient with peritonsillar abscess, necess, if they get better, why would they necessarily need follow-up? So I, what I, I would strongly recommend is that we not beat around the bush with patients about the possibility of cancer. And that's a delicate conversation. We don't want to terrify the patient unnecessarily. But if we, if we don't use the word cancer, we're really doing the patient a disservice. We need to let them know that there's a high probability that these lesions could be cancer. And we need to facilitate that follow-up. I mean, I think about my local patient population. Many come from rural parts of the state. They don't have easy access to specialty care. And so it's really incumbent upon us to create care pathways where those referrals are placed from the emergency department and that follow-up is insured. I don't want, as you said, we don't, we don't want that patient to come back three months later when you know, the horses are out of the barn, treatment is you know, much less effective, and you know, the outcome is going to be dismal if the patient's lost to follow-up. Well, I appreciate you helping me with a good Kentucky reference there with that horse heart already out of the barn. Well done, well done, well played. We are a large volume ED, seeing 350 to 400 patients per day. When we have over 50% of our ED beds full of admitted patients, which happens frequently, we have a plan in place to move our physicians out to see patients in the waiting room. We also at the same time fill the hallways with stretchers where patients are interviewed, examined, and often given discharge instructions after their workup is complete. As you can imagine, this is not ideal as it is hard to ensure privacy and patient comfort in either of these settings. Patient experience is impossible to improve for these patients. Would you be happy if this were you or your family member? Physicians are unhappy as it feels like we can't provide the care we want to, the care we went into medicine for. We are drowning, stressed, and we need help desperately. This is one of the many stories ASEP collected to push for legislative change concerning emergency department boarding. Learn how your stories can help shape legislation that impacts the emergency medicine specialty by registering now for the Leadership and Advocacy Conference at asep.org forward slash LAC. Use promo code EMPOWER to save $100 on registration. Um, any closing thoughts or ideas, um, messages that you need, you would like to pass along to the, um, to the listeners out there and then contact information if they have more questions? Sure. You know, we're, we're trying, just as we're trying to be good stewards of antibiotics, we're trying to be good stewards of CT. And, and I, I'm reluctant to be saying in, in a context like this that almost every patient is going to need a CT. But I really do think that this is a special population. When we start talking about this spectrum of chief complaints, signs and symptoms, and we're talking about adults in that 40 and over age group, we need to be fairly liberal in our use of CT um, because these are life-changing diagnoses. And really the difference between us scanning in the emergency department and maybe the patient struggling to get an outpatient imaging test scheduled 
it could really mean the difference between surviving a cancer diagnosis and succumbing to it. All right, so what's, uh, how would you like folks to get in touch with you? Talking with Dr. Josh Broder here at ASEP 22, talking about some head and neck related mass conversations. And I'll try my best to get this link to the, um, to the actual um, recommendations and policy uh, into the show notes. So I'll, I'll put a link on there to it. So the clinical practice guideline evaluation of the neck masses in adults initially was published September of 2017. Um, we'll get that in there for you. How can folks get in touch with you? Sure, they can reach me at joshua.broder at duke.edu or at emergency images on Twitter. Absolutely, we'll do it. And I appreciate your time. As for me, you can t- contact me, rstantonasep.org, rstantonasep.org and at Everyday Med on Twitter. I encourage and welcome uh, share the podcast. Subscribe. Make sure you've got it on your favorite player so you can get all the episodes. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.